Welcome to The Saint Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring hope to the people of East London, and I'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk. Would you put your hands together and welcome Paul Cowley. Paul. (laughs) Welcome. Come and have a seat. Thank you. Am I on? You're on. Yeah, you're on. How's it? How's it feel to be in Hackney? Well, I feel great after that welcome. I feel I should go now before it goes downhill. <laughs> it was very good. Thank you, Al. But Look we... at this church. Amazing. It's all right, isn't it? It's all right. It's yeah. not bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, Paul, we've, we've known each other for 20 plus years, I think. Yes. It makes me feel old. <laughs> um, uh, let, let's, let's go back to your, your early life. Um, just tell us what it was like. You grew up in a very, really, I mean, a really tough environment. What yeah. was it like? Well, I was born in, in, in Salford, just outside Manchester. Um, my parents were both, um, I guess you'd say, functioning alcoholics. My father, um, larger than life character, six foot three in his prime, uh, from Toxteth in Liverpool. My mum, about five foot, from um, Birkenhead uh, on the Wirral. And they were just, um, you know, they did the best they can, really. I, I, over the years, I've demonized them, but, you know, my father was put in a home when he was five. My mother was beaten by a husband before my father beat him. Um, so I grew up in that environment of... Um, they'd, they'd systematically cut everybody off. That If you didn't agree with my mother or my father, they weren't interested in you. So I grew up in a very sort of adult life. So there was no kids... No uncles or aunties. My dad had binned them all. My mum had fallen out with them. So just a very tight sort of three of us. And, and, and it was a nightmare, actually. It had an effect on a kid. So you got involved in crime, ended up in jail. What, what, how did that happen? What happened? Well, I suppose it came to a sort of head when I was about 16. 15, I was expelled from a, a comprehensive. Um, I was terrified there. I was bullied a lot, and it was horrendous. So... I never really went. I, I ran away and ended up getting expelled. The same time that happened, around about 16, my father came home one weekend. It was anyone who's got alcoholic parents, it's like a cycle. He came home drunk. My mother had cooked a Sunday lunch. Big argument. And unusually, my father went to sort of backhand my mother. And, and, and I got in the middle. And I got the backhand that my, my mum was going to get. And big argument. And I remember my father saying, I want you out of the house. So to I, you? To me, yeah. So I guess in my arrogance and youth, I, I ran upstairs, grabbed the bag, and I ran out the door in Didsbury, where we were living in Manchester. And then I very quickly realized I had nowhere to go. So I ended up homeless for, for a little while in Manchester. How, how old were you? I was 16, just, just over six, 16. Yeah, 16 and a bit. Um, so living rough for a little while, not, not long, but, but enough. And then I got involved in a, in a gang, really, that had taken over this squat in a place called Stockport. And it was a house of, um, a house of thieves, really. Just everybody was living there. People were coming and going. And, and I got involved in crime. Really not proud of that. But, but what the group in the house did is, is steal stuff, nick stuff, bring it back. And then someone would buy it, and that's how I made some money. But, but I wasn't very good at it. I, I constantly got caught by the police. I was the one with the leg hanging out the window that the, sort of copper, <laughs> that the copper grabbed. So that was probation, bound over to keep the peace, fined, more probation, um, just not paying the fines, and then more, and then eventually I stood in front of a magistrate's court in Manchester. 
thinking the similar thing was going to happen. I was going to get told off, shouted at, then I'd go away and crack on. This time, the magistrate looked at me and said, Cowley, you are not doing what we want you to do. We are trying to help you, and you're not interested. You, my son, are going to prison. Wow. And instead of going out the magistrate's door, I went downstairs into the cell and was taken um, to a prison called Risley, um, which his nickname was Grizzly Risley, which was a, a detention borstal center then, and it was horrendous. Wow. Uh, just horrible, really. So as a, as a teenager, you, you find yourself in prison. Fast forward a little bit, you ended up joining the army. What, what happened? Yeah, I did. I came out of the prison. I came out of prison, terrified not to make a mistake again so I don't go in. Uh, I, I got myself a, a bed in, in Didsbury, a little flat, um, one room, and I drove a, a transit van during the day delivering furniture, and I worked in a bar at night, um, the Didsbury Inn. And, and I just wanted to stay out of trouble, stay away from people, mind my own business. And I was doing that for a while, and then as I was driving into Manchester, I saw a poster for the army. And when I looked back, it was great, great marketing because it was two soldiers in camouflage uniform. Uh, backdrop was mountains with snow and blue sky. And, uh, and they were smiling, and they were skiing down this mountain. And, and it said underneath, if you want a life of adventure, join the British Army. So I, I parked the truck, and I walked in, and I said to, I think it was a sergeant major, I said, uh, the stuff on the poster with the, and all the, <laughs> I said, a skiing holiday. The skiing holiday. I'd quite like to sign up, and um, I'm wow. brilliant. Where, where can I sign? And then he said, um, let's sit and have a chat. I told him I'd not long been out of prison, and he goes, ah, you can't really get in because you've got a criminal record. Yeah. I said, oh, is that it? And he said, yeah, shook my hand, and then sort of um, said, well, you never know if you keep trying, and gave me this wink, and I walked out. And I thought, what's the wink mean? Maybe that means I should go back. So long story short, for six months, I went back to the same Sergeant Major. Same handshake, same conversation, same wink. I stropped back in and I said, look, before you do anything, can you not wink? Can you not shake my <laughs> hand? And can you not say, you never know if you keep trying? Because I'm fed up. So he said, come with me. And I went round the back into the recruiting office. And I sat in front of a, a senior officer, a major. And he basically said, we've been watching you for the last six months. You are pretty determined to get in, aren't you? And, wow. I, and I said, I am. And I remember his words. He, he looked at me and said, I'm going to take a chance on you. I shouldn't really let you in. Don't let me down. And that was the start, 27th of January in Manchester, 1976, when someone, someone put hope in my heart. And they, he saw something in me. Someone sort of believed in you, I guess. Someone believed in yeah. me, and, and that was the start of a 17-year career, actually. Wow. Because I never wanted to let that... I never wanted to let him down, actually. So you... Fast forward a little bit. You were in... You saw active service in the Falklands. Um, not many people in this room may remember the Falklands War, but it was um, a, a pretty major conflict that Britain was involved in. We lost 250 of we our did. soldiers. We did. Um, it was a, a, a big... It was sort of, it was a big moment in the life of the nation. And you found yourself as a man in, their, in your 20s... Yes. ...fighting the other side of the world. I mean, you were commanding a whole bunch of men. And well, it, I, what was it like, fighting well, it, a war? It was... I mean, it was a bit weird, really, because... Um, so the, the, main, the main element of the, of the Falklands War, without going into it, was the infantry, was the Marines and the Paras. I mean, the extraordinary group of, of, uh, of people. 
And I, I just happened to transfer regiments, and I joined 16 Air Defense, which were a rapier detachment, surface-to-air missile. So I was a detachment commander. And we got on call to go out there, because just at the end of the campaign, there were still skirmishes going on, which you read about. So these uh, rapier units were manned all over the hills in the Falklands to, to fire at the, the, the planes that were coming. So I ended up going out there with 16 Air Defense, which I wasn't planning to do. I'm being stuck on a hill as a rapier detachment commander, which was, um, I know it's weird, but most soldiers might understand it. It was kind of fun, but it was kind of scary as well. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy that here we are, um, you know, we mark Remembrance Sunday, particularly at our 10 a.m. service, which we did. We had the whole place full with um, local soldiers and politicians and MPs and people from the community, 600 people packed in here. to, to Something, um, you know, many people will know people who are in military service or in, in serving in public life in some way. And here we are, yet again, facing a war that is yes. on the European continent again, and we've all seen the headlines. And in effect, in a sense, every one of us is affected by increased cost of living because of gas prices. We're in a time which is kind of quite full on for people. But, but your, your faith wasn't a part of your life then. You were sort of involved in a war, but it wasn't a sense of faith going on. Your life was quite opposite from where it is now. Just tell us a bit about what was really going on behind the uniform and in your heart in those times. Well, the, you know, I had a bumpy start. Not, not as bad as some people, I'm sure, even in here. But no, faith was never, was never an option because my parents were atheists. The school I went to, I don't remember any, you know, the time I was there, no religious education. When I went to prison, I, I never met a chaplain. You know, I never had that knock on the door, don't worry, son, come and have a cup of tea. That, that never happened. And then 17 years in the military, not that I was looking for padres, let's put it that way, um, but, but I never met one. I did drumhead services and as a staff sergeant when I came out, I went to official things, and, but not interested, really. I stood at the back, you know, waiting to get out to get to the bar. So faith was never, it was never, never a thing for me during my military career because my military career went really well. Uh, I, I think I did quite well in there. But my personal life was, was a complete nightmare. But I hid it in a uniform. So I went through two marriages, two divorces. I left my son, Clinton, when he was three to my first marriage. And I just couldn't handle responsibility. I didn't know what it was to be a dad, really. That was all new to me because my father was a complete nightmare. Uh, I didn't know what it was to be a husband. My mother and father had divorced both numerous times and... He didn't treat her well, and, and she was difficult. So I didn't know what that was, and I just couldn't care for anybody. I, I had no idea how to look after anyone except myself, so that's all I did, really, look after me. And what happened? Well, I, I left the army after 17 years. The reason I left, I, I asked for a posting to go and do adventure training, and the army, in his wisdom, wanted to send me to the guards depot. So uh, I, I got out, I resigned. Um, while, just before I resigned, I, I, met, I went to Cyprus um, just to finish off on that. I was a good soldier, but I realized I was getting in trouble quite a lot. So I went to my colonel and said, sir, can you help? Uh, and it was obvious I was a bit of a troublemaker. And he said, I'll send you somewhere where you can sort yourself out. And he sent me to Cyprus, to Trudos. Uh, there's only one mountain there. And when I went, there was nothing there. And it was great. I was teaching lads to sort of... Um, expeditions, doing climbing, all that map reading, survival skills, fantastic. No drink, no fighting, no women, 
just me on my own with the lads. It was great. And then when I was doing some climbing one day, uh, teaching the lads to abseil, the corporal that was with me said, hey, boss, I, I can hear some women. I said, there's no women here. It's like they would go to a sheep or something. He goes, no, no, there's some women's voices. Anyway, we abseiled down the rock. And uh, sure, is there was two girls um, sat on these boulders doing sketches um, on a, an exchange visit um, from England to, to Pathos doing um, sketching and drawing at the college. Um, and, you know, as you do, I, I strolled over to them. So hang on, you, you abseiled yeah. into this scene. That's quite an entrance. Well, it, I just had a pair of shorts on as well. It was quite... It was quite... <laughs> Thanks. So, I wouldn't normally say we've got a photo of it. I think there's a photo in the book of you looking yeah, quite similar, but I'm not going to... It's a PG audience, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so those two girls, one was Amanda, who's now my wife, and one was Christina, two, two young girls. I mean, very young girls, 21, I think they were. Um, 19, 20. Uh, and I went over to them, and uh, I said, you know, what, what are you doing here? And, and to be honest, I wasn't really looking for a relationship because I'd failed at all of them. So I just felt a bit sort of concerned for them. So I said, why don't you come back to the, to the camp? We've got a bit of a, a barbecue on. We're roasting something. We've killed it, and, you know, we're, we're roasting it. And they both went, we're vegetarians. <laughs> I said, well, I'm sure we can find you a tomato or something. And they came back, and that was the start, long story short, of, uh, of, of, me, of me really knowing what love is with, with Amanda, who is the love of my life, you know, I, I, I fell in love with her, which was, was complicated. She went back to England, I went back to a regiment, um, and, and I couldn't get her out of my head. So when I left the army, we moved in, in together. Um, I, my last four years in the army were army physical training course. I ran health clubs, Champneys, Bath and Rackets in, in London. And, uh, and, and I bought a house and we moved in and things were going well. Um, what happened then is, you know, we had all the, the nice... Amanda worked for a TV company. I worked for Champney's Health Club. We had lots of toys and the money and everything was going well. Um, and then one day, I got this postcard in, in the post. And, and I, got, I looked at it with the bills and everything. And it was a, a biblical scene. It had a shepherd on the front and some sheep. And round two of the sheep, someone had written a pen and written, You and me. <laughs> And I thought, anyway, I turned it over, and it said, um, I've become a Christian. You need to marry that woman you're living with. Come and see me. And the signature frightened the life out of me. The signature was a guy called Eric Martin. Now, Eric was my senior instructor in the PT Corps, and I hated him. Absolutely hated him. He was a psychopath in uniform. And he just made my life for a year hell. And when I got posted to the Green Jackets, I never saw him again, and I was so happy. And then when I got this postcard, I thought, what has happened to him? He's a complete nightmare of a man. And he's now become a Christian, whatever that means, and he knows where I live. So <laughs> the, the last one scared me because he was a bad man. And uh, so I threw it away, and Amanda said to me, are you, you going to do something about it? I said, no. And then I thought, do you know what? I am. I'm going to go down to Aldershot PT School, and I'm going to give him... Aside of my, I'm just going to tell him what a nightmare he was, and, and I hated him. So I went down to the PT school, not in uniform. He's got no control over me whatsoever, so let's go for it. And I spent three days with him in the sergeant's mess in Aldershot, and I could not get over the change in this man. Wow. I mean, 
I mean, I just, it, I was nervous of him because he was an army boxer. But he started to tell me about this episode that in, 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 in Kathmandu when he went to church and met with God. And I went, yeah, all right. And, and I, it changed him. But his whole personality and he started to talk to me about scriptures. You know, that God has a good and perfect plan, that the suffering we go through has a purpose. And what happened, it, it, like that major, it started to put hope in my heart. And he said, Paul, you can be a good dad. You can be a good husband. You can be a, a man of good character. And, and on the last night, uh, he walked me to my room in the sergeant's mess. And, uh, and I said, I'll see you at breakfast, Ez. And he said, good night. Just have a read of this before you go to bed. And I took it off him. I got ready for bed, and there was a piece of paper. And it was, um, now I know, it was all scriptures. And he'd highlighted it with pens and all sorts of things. And it was a piece of scripture in Matthew, Matthew 22. And it, and it said, um, the king said to his servants, take this man, bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the alley where there'll be a great deal of wailing and gnashing of teeth. Not the best scripture to <laughs> give someone. But what it did for me is I, I, I couldn't rest. All through that night, I, I, I woke up in a cold sweat thinking of stuff, hands bound, legs bound, alley screaming, gnashing of teeth. Wow. And in, and in the end, about four o'clock in the morning, I got up and I said, I don't know if you're up there and I don't know if I'm talking to the ceiling, but I really don't want the gnashing of teeth. Amen. Wow. I went, I, I went for breakfast and Eric was there in uniform and uh, I walked up to him. I won't say exactly what I said to him, but he said, uh, how did you sleep? I said, not well. And he said, so what did you do? I said, well, that gnashing of teeth and, and the darkness. And, and he said, what did you do? I said, I don't know. I, I got on my knees and I said, if you're up there and all this, you know, I don't want the gnashing of teeth. Amen. Mm. And he looked up and he went, ah, welcome to the kingdom of God. You're now a Christian. <laughs> and that was my entrance into the Christian faith. So you then, you then did an alpha course? I did an alpha course and found out there were some really nice scriptures in yeah. the Bible, not just the ones Eric gave me. Um, and then um, in 97, I was asked to, to, I did some volunteering in prisons, which I didn't want to do, but I was persuaded by Emmy Wilson, who we know. Uh, and and I, I went on prison visits, and then something happened on the prison visit. I realized that uh, I could relate to these men, and I didn't know how to do that. And I got more and more volunteering, trying to run a big health club in London, and something had to go. And I, and I prayed. I said, I, I can't keep doing both of these things. Yeah. I, I'm dying here. So, and, and then I got asked to come on staff in 97. So you, 1997, the Alpha began to be run in prisons. It did. And there was a, a remarkable, and we haven't got time to go into the full details, a remarkable man called Michael Emmett. Michael. Who was imprisoned, I think, for the largest ever drugs import he into was. the UK. Four and a half ton. Just tell in one minute what happened to Michael, because that kick-started Revival, really, in the prisons. It did. It was about 96. Emmy was, got invited by the chaplain, Bill Birdwood, of Dartmoor Prison. And, um, and she went down there. Then she went to Exeter. Uh, not, not really, no structure, no alpha course, no nothing. And she got, uh, there was a bunch of guys in the chapel. And two of the men in there, one was Michael Emmett and one was Brian Emmett. Brian was part of the craze. He was that sort of East End. Really, and, and Michael was a... A larger-than-life character, handsome, you know, central casting criminal. Yeah. Ruin. And they'd been caught for the biggest importation of drugs, four and a half ton, uh, career criminals. 
They both got 12 and a half years sentence, son and dad together in prison. And they're famous in East London, the, the famous, well, yeah. especially Brian, who's, yeah. who's passed away now. Brian was very famous, was part of uh, the syndicate with the craze. Yeah. Um, so really high-profile prisoners and, and just hard men. Anyway, they both ended up in this chapel. Um, Emmy gave a, a word and asked the Holy Spirit to come. And no one expected to happen what happened. The Holy Spirit fell a special on Michael and Brian. And Brian, as a 50-year-old notorious criminal, fell on the floor, couldn't stop laughing. So everyone, well, you can imagine what they were saying about, you know, what was going on. The prison officers didn't know what was going on. Then Brian got touched, uh, Michael got touched by the Holy Spirit. And that kick-started, because they were notorious and had a reputation they persuaded and encouraged men to go to chapel. Oh, I've heard Michael describe it. He said, we're going to do the Alpha, boys. We're going to do the Alpha. And the whole prison came. And you're coming with me. Yeah, you're coming with or me. Or else. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's when the Alpha course, and it just kind of, you know, oh, we better get the Alpha course in there. What's happening? Bill Birdwood in Dartmoor started it, and then Emmy went down, and I started volunteering. And that was the start. And as Michael and Brian... Uh, their sentence got commuted to six years instead of 12. As they went through the system, everywhere they went, they went, are you the chaplain? Yeah, well, you've got to get this alpha course down there, get on the blower to HTB, and courses started everywhere, right. all over the place. Now, just give us a, a, an idea of, because it was at one point in the UK, and this is where I think it's remarkable, 80% of the prisons, I mean, yeah. hundreds of thousands of people yeah. coming to faith Yep. Just say a bit about the, what the impact was of the, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in these prisons. Well, it was just, it was, I mean, there's always been chaplains in prisons since the Prison Act. But, um, but what happened is, you know, God's plan is God's plan, isn't it? The Alpha Course went in there, and it's not just Alpha, it's people coming to Christ. But there was a, a move of the Spirit of God, you're absolutely right. So, and, and Brian and Michael were definitely part of God's sort of um, plan. And as they moved, more people came. So more people came to Christ. So more people were interested. So chapels were starting to be filled. More people wanted to be baptized. Baptism pools had to be brought in. You know, people were getting confirmed. It was just, it was a wild time. And you're right, it was, it was over 80% of the prisons before COVID was 80% of the prisons. And now it's uh, about 40, 45% growing every day. But... You know, if you think of the Wormwood Scrubs, where we have a, an alpha in there constantly all the year through, there's men being baptized and coming to Christ, crying on the, I've witnessed it, on the floor, crying, repenting, asking for salvation. You don't always get that in, in a prison environment. But it's been extraordinary. And the hard part is when they come out. So uh, it, it's, it's tens of thousands of men have come to faith now. Maybe hundreds of thousands. Over 500,000, last count in the UK, wow. have gone through the course. Um, in prison? In prison. And of course, it went international, because Alpha's international. So we jumped on the back of all the international stuff. And at its height, that was about 72 countries, wow. which we reckon was, I don't know, over a million people have gone through the course, really. Now, what I find fascinating is that the, the government started to invite you to come and do Alpha in the prisons because of the rate of reoffending. Just say about the rate of reoffending and the impact of Jesus on people's lives. Well, whenever you go on a, on a, on a, web, a website, government website, the, the, the rate of reoffending varies. It's a statistic that's moving all over the place. But, you know, it's, it's around about 72, 75% of, of men, mostly men in prison, 4% of female, uh, reoffend uh, once released. 
And, and one of the main things about helping men not reoffend is getting the job. It says it's reduced by 50% if they can get a, an honest P45 job. Right. Let's put it that way. Uh, that, that helps <laughs> and accommodation and community. That, that's why this is so, so important. So the reoffending rates are pretty high. Uh, and, and, you know, 70% of men in prison have some form of mental health issue. Okay. So, so it's really hard work. One statistic is, while you're in prison, you make about 200 decisions max a day. When you come out, normally, we make over 2,000 decisions a day. So yeah. you can see the impact of coming back into society. Yeah. It's hard work. But because the, the people coming off Alpha who'd been through prisons, the reoffending rate was a bit different, wasn't it? The reoffending rate was with Stephen, and the government got involved. We asked them for, for a, a, a grant. They gave us some money to reestablish caring for ex-offenders, the charity, um, which helps. Because when the church, when community gets involved, you know, there might be some ex-offenders in here already, but once you get involved and you bring them in and you work with them and you help them and you nurture them and you have patience and grace you help them get employment, it starts to change and it reduces down to single figures. So the Caring for Ex-Offenders charity was reducing it down to single figures. Wow. Which is extraordinary. So but it's 70% community. down to single digits. Down to single figures. Of reoffending. Of reoffending. If the church would grab yeah. these guys and girls and look after them yeah. and nurture them. Yeah. So we've, we've done some work with yeah. Caring for Ex-Offenders and we've currently got a... a um, in our West Ham location, a team who are working in, in um, Pentaville, actually, with, um, with prisoners. And actually, during lockdown, you, you may not know this, but the, the, um, the service that we would broadcast from here was a service that was played in, in Pentaville. It so it's really encouraging. Um, and I, I think there may be people in the room here who have friends, relatives, you know, people they know who will have been through the prison system. And by the grace of God, that could be any of us, really. Um, let's look at what you're doing now because something very interesting has happened you're not you're, you've never been a kind of run-of-the-mill vicar Paul you know you got ordained thanks Al you, you're a <laughs> you're a priest um uh, but but you've done something a bit maverick again um just yes. recently well I was saying to Amanda if she's in she's supposed to be coming um I've never really had a, a proper job interview do you know what I mean? I've never you know my interview to get on, on in, in the church was with Trish of a cup of coffee Trish and Neil so, so, yeah, so this one, uh, to condense it, you know, I've done quite a bit at HDB, and it's been an extraordinary place. And, and in July, the end of July, I, I resigned from, from HDB. Um, and I took up a new role as, um, <laughs> as director of rehabilitation for Iceland Foods. Wow. Exactly. Um, so that, that started from someone we both know, Sir Malcolm Walker, who was the founder of Iceland um, over 50 years ago. Uh, I, I met him in, in Africa on, a, on another trip and became friends and we got to know each other. Then he went out of my life completely, then got in touch with me again. Because Weirdly, because I met him. I didn't know who you he was. did. But he said he knew you, so I took a selfie with him you and I sent you the photo. You did. And actually, it's your fault I'm doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> because that sort of... So I had about a six-year, five-year gap of not seeing him. You sent me a, a selfie with him like this. Um, it's a very awkward photograph. You both look quite drunk, that's all I'm saying. No, in the Holy Spirit, for <laughs> my case. But he... And so, so that prompted me to get in touch with him again. We had a bit of a gap. He got in touch with me. They had this conversation. And he said, um, I, I want to help men and women in prison. Yeah. So I said, well, what do you want to do? And he said, I don't know. Help me. 
So Iceland, if you don't know, it's got 1,500 stores, nine distribution units. We've got one units. just down in Hattie Central. We've got one here. They're uh, everywhere. A number of people here shop at Iceland. So if they come and see you, can we get like a discount? You can, especially on the fish fingers. Can we get a deal? And the Greg's pies. Oh, brilliant. So 30 plus thousand staff. So it's a really, I didn't know. I thought it was just a little store on the high street. It, it's enormous. So um, I said, well, you need to get serious about it. Or what do I do? I said, well, you need to hire someone at a senior level. You need probably director level, you know, on the exec team that you've got. You need to give them, um, they need to be answerable to you so they don't get pushed down somewhere. Uh, and they went, oh, I'm not ready for that yet. I said, well, when you are, give me a shout because I've got a full-time job. Um, I'll, I'll help you find somebody. Long story short, he phoned me back the next day and said, I've been thinking about what you said. I said, good. So shall I look for somebody? He went, no, I don't want you to look for anybody. I want you. Wow. And he offered me a job on the phone. Amazing. So I went to see him, you know, a bit serious about a job. And, uh, and he said, I'm serious. I want to do it. I want 10% of my workforce in the next three to five years to be men and women from prison or those on the margins of society. Amazing. Uh, uh, extraordinary. And it's, it, it's that... A Yorkshireman, a hard Yorkshireman, and you know, having watched what they do, and you've seen them on the TV and, and stuff, and um, Richard Walker, his son, is they have this real heart for the lost and the marginalized, and, and it grabbed me. Yeah. So, you know, it just it got me, and I thought, I said, if you're serious about this, I will resign from my role and do this. And he said, well, I won't tell you exactly what I said, but he said, I am pretty serious, and when can you start? Yeah. And, and I started on the, I started on the um, 5th of September, and it's been, it's been extraordinary. We've got 30, 30. So I go around prisons, and I interview people, um, and, and if, 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 they, if they fit the criteria, I, I give them a job. And it's not like I have to go back and ask a board and do this, and the bureaucracy is, you've got a job. So we've put three in already. Amazing. And there's 29 waiting to go in between now and the end of January. Wow. It's just remarkable, Paul, how God is using you to minister. I mean, Jesus says, you know, that, that incredibly powerful scripture Jesus talked about, you know, when you came and visited me yes. in prison. And they're like, when, when do we come visit in prison? Well, anytime you visited a prisoner, Jesus is saying, you visited me. Um, we're coming into land, and there'll be people right across the day, and I'll ask the same question. Um, there might be people who are watching who are like, well, they've talk, heard you talk about hope. They've heard you talk about recovering from divorces and addiction and abuse and a very hard upbringing and going on to make an impact on the lives of others. Um, and you've talked a bit about hope, but the question I want to end with, um, which I guess is a question that every one of us it's open to every one of us, is what difference has Jesus made to your life? It's, it's even hard to, to, to put it into words. You know, I said this morning, I, I, I prayed, I was on an Alpha course and I prayed and, and, the, um, and the Holy Spirit came into me, which I didn't know what the Holy Spirit was, to be honest, but I had this feeling of unconditional love which was a big deal for me, and, and it still is. And God said to me, I will never leave you, I will never abandon you, and I'll stay with you forever. And it was that, sounds cliched, but it was that love that I've experienced. And he kind of said to me, I've got a job for you, if you trust me. So the big issue for me, and it might be for others, it was trust. 
you know, I never trusted my parents. I never felt safe. You know, the marriages were, were a nightmare. Me again, not, not the women in my life. They were amazing. Um, so it was always trust and, and fear. And, and again, you know, like Bear says at one point, you know, God took all his crutches away and made him stand on his own. And, and, and I felt I just, he said, I want you to stand on your own. You're a good man, Paul. You just, you just don't know it yet. And it's that sort of, um, what is it in Proverbs? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So I'd had all the hope knocked out of me. And um, starting with that major and started with various people um, you know, in my Christian faith as well, I've constantly given me hope. Even Iceland. You know, I took the reverend off my business card because it's not about that. It's just got Paul Cowley. But every time I speak to somebody there, they go, um, are you the vicar? <laughs> and I go, well, yeah, I'm always a reverend, yeah, yeah. But you're a director as well, yeah. So what's this thing about church then? Yeah. So there's always these conversations. And the, the head of HR, um, I'm going to name her Helen. She's brilliant. We're becoming friends. She, we were having a conversation because um, I'm trying to get all these protocols in for Iceland because they haven't had ex-offenders before. And it's a big organization. So putting all these protocols in. I'm sat with her and... Um, we're talking away about stuff, and she goes, um, I've read your book. I said, oh, great. Happy? She goes, yes, yes. Um, there's something we've got to talk about, but not yet. I go, okay, well, what's that? She goes, in the book, you describe when you're in the church, and this thing called the Holy Spirit comes down, and people fall on the floor, and they're changed. I go, yes. She goes, I need to know what that is. But not now. We need to... <laughs> so those conversations, wow. even though I thought I've gone secular, you're never secular with the Lord. Yeah. He's always doing something. So it's hope. Yeah. Hope that we can change and do, and do something. So you started off in your life and with alcohol, with multiple marriages. What does your life look like today? You know, there's a piece of scripture again that says, the Lord has caused my boundaries to fall in pleasant places. And, and, and it has, but it's been, um, it's, been, it's been battles and blessings, as Rick Warren says. You know, all this stuff I'm telling you about is fantastic, but there's been a few issues and a few bumps along the way. And like he says, I'm understanding that these things, they run concurrently. You just don't have a fantastic time, and then a year later it goes pear-shaped. They all happen at the same time. And that's, for me, in the last few months, my, my faith has really had to dig in. It really has, and, and it's, been, it's been hard work. And I've had a few conversations with the Lord, and, you know, I, yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about being real with him. Uh, and my life is, it's a good life. I hope it's not finished yet. Uh, I hope there's more chapters. Um, but it's, it's been, it changed when I met him, Al. Really, I don't know how to say, you know, when he came into my life, he's always been there, just nobody told me about him. Uh, and it changed. My, my life, it just changed. Amazing. Well, I'd love for you to pray for us, and then we're going to have communion together and come oh, into land. Right. But why don't we stand together? I'm going to ask Paul to pray for that Holy Spirit that Helen from HR in Iceland is after, that we're all after. Um, but why don't you pray for the Holy Spirit to fill every one of us? And as you know, we love to pray. And um, often, I'd encourage you as the church just to hold your hands out and be open, and maybe you're someone who walks with Jesus. Maybe you're exploring faith. Maybe you're not any Christian and, but invite the Holy Spirit to fill you right now and see what happens. So, Paul, why don't you pray for us? I will, and you as well. 
Father God, thank you that you are an enormous God. You are always there. You're always in the area. You're always in the wings. You're constantly waiting for us to turn to you. Lord, first of all, I pray for anyone in here that doesn't know you. I pray that you would move in their hearts about that love, that overwhelming, unconditional love. Lord, I pray that they would just ask in the silence of their hearts for you to come into their lives, and you will do that. And Lord, I pray for anyone who's saying that or thinking that now. Father, guide them, direct them to somebody where they can talk about you. And Father, we ask for your spirit to fall on us now. Help us, Lord, with our fears, our anxieties, our addictions, whatever it might be, our hopes. Lord, I pray that you would fill us now. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Stay in an attitude of prayer, and I would encourage you that if there's something on your heart, then ask the Lord. He wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to know what you want, so tell him. Father, open our hearts now to ask you to knock, to seek. Come, Holy Spirit. I believe there's people in here. Al, where have you gone? I believe there's people in here that um, something is stirring in your stomach now. It's a, it's a desire, it's a hope, it's a dream, it's a passion, it's a vision, it's a thought, whatever it is. And you have pushed it so far down because of that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And what God's doing and will continue to do now is loosen that and bring it to, to become something if you don't do it, maybe it might not get done. It's a vision, it's a dream, it's a thought, it's an application, it's whatever it is, but it's in there and it's coming up. And if that's you, speak it out and embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.